Chapter Ten, Part One of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Ten, The Widening Circle, Part One. It was very burdensome to Ursula that she was the eldest of the family. By the time she was eleven, she had to take to school Gudrun and Teresa and Catherine. The boy William, always called Billy, so that he should not be confused with his father, was a lovable, rather delicate child of three, so he stayed at home as yet. There was another baby girl called Cassandra. The children went for a time to the little church school just near the marsh. It was the only place within reach. And being so small, Mrs. Brangwen felt safe in sending her children there, though the village boys did nickname Ursula Ertler, and Gudrun Goodrunner, and Teresa Teapot. Gudrun and Ursula were co-mates. The second child, with her long, sleepy body and her endless chain of fancies, would have nothing to do with realities. She was not for them. She was for her own fancies. Ursula was the one for realities. So Gudrun left all such to her elder sister and trusted in her implicitly, indifferently. Ursula had a great tenderness for her comate sister. It was no good trying to make Gudrun responsible. She floated along like a fish in the sea, perfect within the medium of her own difference and being. Other existence did not trouble her. Only she believed in Ursula and trusted to Ursula. The eldest child was very much fretted by her responsibility for the other young ones, especially Teresa, a sturdy, bold-eyed thing, had a faculty for warfare. Our Ursula, Billy Pillins has lugged my hair. What did you say to him? I said nothing. Then the Brangwen girls were in for a feud with the Pillinses or Phillipses. "'You won't pull my hair again, Billy Pillin,' said Teresa, walking with her sisters and looking superbly at the freckled red-haired boy. "'Why, shan't I?' retorted Billy Pillins. "'You won't, because you durstn't,' said the tiresome Teresa. "'You come here, then, Teapot, and see if I durstn't.' Up marched Teapot, and immediately Billy Pillins lugged her black snaky locks. In a rage she flew at him. Immediately in rushed Ursula and Gudrun, and little Katie— in clashed the other Phillipses, Clem and Walter, and Eddie Anthony. Then there was a fray. The Brangwen girls were well-grown and stronger than many boys, but for pinafores and long hair they would have carried easy victories. They went home, however, with hair lugged and pinafores torn. It was a joy to the Phillips boys to rip the pinafores of the Brangwen girls. Then there was an outcry. Mrs. Brangwen would not have it. No, she would not. All her innate dignity and standoffishness rose up. Then there was the vicar lecturing the school. It was a sad thing that the boys of Cossete could not behave more like gentlemen to the girls of Cossete. Indeed, what kind of boy was it that should set upon a girl and kick her and beat her and tear her pinafore? That boy deserved severe castigation, and the name of coward, for no boy who was not a coward, etc., etc., Meanwhile, much hang-dog fury in the Pillins's hearts, much virtue in the Brangwen girls, particularly in Teresa's, and the feud continued with periods of extraordinary amity, when Ursula was Clem Phillips's sweetheart, and Gudrun was Walter's, and Teresa was Billy's, 
and even the tiny Katie had to be Eddie Antney's sweetheart. There was the closest union. At every possible moment the little gang of Brangwens and Phillipses flew together, yet neither Ursula nor Gudrun would have any real intimacy with the Phillips boys. It was a sort of fiction to them, this alliance and this dubbing of sweethearts. Again Mrs. Brangwen rose up. "'Ursula, I will not have you raking the roads with lads. So I tell you. Now stop it, and the rest will stop it.' How Ursula hated always to represent the little Brangwen club. She could never be herself. No, she was always Ursula Goodwin, Teresa Catherine, and later even Billy was added on to her. Moreover, she did not want the Phillipses either. She was out of taste with them. However, the Brangwen Pillins coalition readily broke down, owing to the unfair superiority of the Brangwins. The Brangwins were rich, they had free access to the Marsh Farm, the school teachers were almost respectful to the girls, the vicar spoke to them on equal terms. The Brangwen girls presumed. They tossed their heads. "'You're not everybody, Ertler Brangwen ugly mug,' said Clem Phillips, his face going very red. "'I'm better than you for all that,' retorted Ertler. "'You think you are with a face like that, ugly mug, Ertler Brangwen?' He began to jeer, trying to set all the others in cry against her. Then there was hostility again. How she hated their jeering! She became cold against the Phillipses. Ursula was very proud in her family. The Brangwen girls had all a curious blind dignity, even a kind of nobility in their bearing. By some result of breed and upbringing, they seemed to rush along their own lives without caring that they existed to other people. Never from the start did it occur to Ursula that other people might hold a low opinion of her. She thought that whosoever knew her knew she was enough and accepted her as such. She thought it was a world of people like herself. She suffered bitterly if she were forced to have a low opinion of any person, and she never forgave that person. This was maddening to many little people. All their lives the Brangwins were meeting folk who tried to pull them down to make them seem little. Curiously, the mother was aware of what would happen, and was always ready to give her children the advantage of the move. When Ursula was twelve, and the common school and the companionship of the village children, niggardly and begrudging, was beginning to affect her, Anna sent her with Gudrun to the grammar school in Nottingham. This was a great release for Ursula. She had a passionate craving to escape from the belittling circumstances of life, the little jealousies, the little differences, the little meannesses. It was a torture to her that the Phillipses were poorer and meaner than herself, that they used mean little reservations, took petty little advantages. She wanted to be with her equals, but not by diminishing herself. She did want Clem Phillips to be her equal, but by some puzzling painful fate or other, when he was really there with her, he produced in her a tight feeling in the head. She wanted to beat her forehead, to escape. Then she found that the way to escape was easy. One departed from the whole circumstance. One went away to the grammar school and left the little school, the meagre teachers, the Phillipses whom she had tried to love but who had made her fail and whom she could not forgive. She had an instinctive fear of petty people, as a deer is afraid of dogs. Because she was blind she could not calculate nor estimate people. She must think that everybody was just like herself. She measured by the standard of her own people, her father and mother, her grandmother, her uncles, 
her beloved father so utterly simple in his demeanour, yet with his strong dark soul fixed like a root in unexpressed depths that fascinated and terrified her. Her mother, so strangely free of all money and convention and fear, entirely indifferent to the world, standing by herself without connection. Her grandmother, who had come from so far, and was centred in so wide an horizon, people must come up to these standards before they could be Ursula's people. So even as a girl of twelve, she was glad to burst the narrow boundary of Cassite, where only limited people lived. Outside was all vastness, and a throng of real proud people whom she would love. Going to school by train, she must leave home at a quarter to eight in the morning, and she did not arrive again till half-past five at evening. Of this she was glad, for the house was small and over-full. It was a storm of movement, whence there had been no escape. She hated so much being in charge. The house was a storm of movement. The children were healthy and turbulent. The mother only wanted their animal well-being. To Ursula, as she grew a little older, it became a nightmare. When she saw, later, a Rubens picture with storms of naked babies, and found this was called fecundity, she shuddered, and the world became abhorrent to her. She knew as a child what it was to live amidst storms of babies in the heat and swelter of fecundity, and as a child she was against her mother, passionately against her mother, she craved for some spirituality and stateliness. In bad weather home was a bedlam. Children dashed in and out of the rain, to the puddles under the dismal yew-trees, across the wet flagstones of the kitchen, whilst the cleaning-woman grumbled and scolded. Children were swarming on the sofa. Children were kicking the piano in the parlour to make it sound like a beehive. Children were rolling on the hearth-rug, legs in air, pulling a book in two between them. Children, fiendish, ubiquitous, were stealing upstairs to find out where our Ursula was, whispering at bedroom doors, hanging on the latch, calling mysteriously, Ursula, Ursula, to the girl who had locked herself in to read, and it was hopeless. The locked door excited their sense of mystery. She had to open to dispel the lure. These children hung on to her with round-eyed, excited questions. The mother flourished amid all this. "'Better have them noisy than ill,' she said. But the growing girls, in turn, suffered bitterly. Ursula was just coming to the stage when Anderson and Grimm were being left behind for the idols of the king and romantic love-stories. Elaine, the fair Elaine, the lovable Elaine, the lily-maid of Astolat, high in her chamber, in a tower to the east, guarded the sacred shield of Launcelot. How she loved it! How she leaned in her bedroom window with her black rough hair on her shoulders, and her warm face all wrapped, and gazed across at the churchyard and the little church, which was a turreted castle, whence Launcelot would ride just now, would wave to her as he rode by, his scarlet cloak passing behind the dark yew-trees and between the open space, whilst she, ah, she would remain the lonely maid high up and isolated in the tower, polishing the terrible shield, weaving it a covering with a true device, and waiting, waiting, always remote and high. At which point there would be a faint scuffle on the stairs, a light-pitched whispering outside the door, and a creaking of the latch. Then Billy, excited, whispering, "'It's locked! It's locked!' Then the knocking, kicking at the door with childish knees, and the urgent, childish, 
Ursula, our Ursula, Ursula, eh, our Ursula. No reply. Ursula, eh, our Ursula. The name was shouted now, still no answer. Mother, she won't answer, came the yell. She's dead. Go away, I'm not dead. What do you want? came the angry voice of the girl. Open the door, our Ursula, came the complaining cry. It was all over. She must open the door. She heard the screech of the bucket downstairs dragged across the flagstones as the woman washed the kitchen floor, and the children were prowling in the bedroom, asking, What were you doing? What did you lock the door for? Then she discovered the key of the parish room, and betook herself there, and sat on some sacks with her books. There began another dream. She was the only daughter of the old lord. She was gifted with magic. Day followed day of rapt silence, while she wandered ghost-like in the hushed ancient mansion, or flitted along the sleeping terraces. Here a grave grief attacked her, that her hair was dark. She must have fair hair and a white skin. She was rather bitter about her black mane. Never mind, she would dye it when she grew up, or bleach it in the sun till it was bleached fair. Meanwhile she wore a fair white coif of pure Venetian lace. She flitted silently along the terraces where jewelled lizards basked upon the stone, and did not move when her shadow fell upon them. In the utter stillness she heard the tinkle of the fountain, and smelled the roses whose blossoms hung rich and motionless. So she drifted, drifted on the wistful feet of beauty, past the water and the swans, to the noble park, where underneath a great oak a doe all dappled lay with her four fine feet together her fawn nestling sun-coloured beside her. Oh, and this doe was her familiar. It would talk to her, because she was a magician. It would tell her stories as if the sunshine spoke. Then one day she left the door of the parish room unlocked, careless and unheeding, as she always was. The children found their way in. Katie cut her finger and howled. Billy hacked notches in the fine chisels and did much damage. There was a great commotion. The crossness of the mother was soon finished. Ursula locked up the room again and considered all was over. Then her father came in with the notched tools. His forehead nodded. "'Who the deuce opened the door?' he cried in anger. "'It was Ursula who opened the door,' said her mother. He had her duster in his hand. He turned and flapped the cloth hard across the girl's face. The cloth stung. For a moment the girl was as if stunned. Then she remained motionless, her face closed and stubborn, but her heart was blazing. In spite of herself, the tears surged higher. In spite of her, they surged higher. In spite of her, her face broke. She made a curious, gulping grimace, and the tears were falling, so she went away desolate. But her blazing heart was fierce and unyielding. He watched her go, and a pleasurable pain filled him. A sense of triumph and easy power, followed immediately by acute pity. "'I'm sure that was unnecessary, to hit the girl across the face,' said the mother coldly. "'A flip with the duster won't hurt her,' he said. "'Nor will it do her any good. "'For days, for weeks, Ursula's heart burned from this rebuff. "'She felt so cruelly vulnerable. "'Did he not know how vulnerable she was, how exposed and wincing? "'He, of all people, knew—' and he wanted to do this to her. He wanted to hurt her right through her closest sensitiveness. He wanted to treat her with shame, to maim her with insult. 
Her heart burnt in isolation like a watch-fire lighted. She did not forget. She did not forget. She never forgot. When she returned to her love for her father, the seed of mistrust and defiance burned unquenched, though covered up far from sight. She no longer belonged to him unquestioned. Slowly, slowly, the fire of mistrust and defiance burned in her, burned away her connection with him. She ran a good deal alone, having a passion for all moving, active things. She loved the little brooks. Wherever she found a little running water, she was happy. It seemed to make her run and sing in spirit along with it. She could sit for hours by a brook or stream on the roots of the alders and watch the water hasten dancing over the stones or among the twigs of a fallen branch. Sometimes little fish vanished before they had become real, like hallucinations. Sometimes wagtails ran by the water's brink. Sometimes other little birds came to drink. She saw a kingfisher darting blue, and then she was very happy. The kingfisher was the key to the magic world. He was witness of the border of enchantment. But she must move out of the intricately woven illusion of her life, the illusion of a father whose life was an odyssey in an outer world, the illusion of her grandmother, of realities so shadowy and far off that they became as mystic symbols, peasant girls with wreaths of blue flowers in their hair, the sledges and the depths of winter, the dark-bearded young grandfather, marriage and war and death, then the multitude of illusions concerning herself, how she was truly a princess of Poland, how in England she was under a spell, she was not really this Ursula Brangwen, then the mirage of her reading. Out of the multicolored illusion of this her life, she must move on to the grammar school in Nottingham. She was shy, and she suffered. For one thing, she bit her nails, and had a cruel consciousness in her fingertips, a shame, an exposure. Out of all proportion this shame haunted her. She spent hours of torture conjuring how she might keep her gloves on, if she might say her hands were scalded, if she might seem to forget to take off her gloves. For she was going to inherit her own estate when she went to the high school. There each girl was a lady. There she was going to walk among free souls, her co-mates and her equals, and all petty things would be put away. Ah, if only she did not bite her nails, if only she had not this blemish. She wanted so much to be perfect, without spot or blemish, living a high, noble life. It was a grief to her that her father made such a poor introduction. He was brief as ever, like a boy saying his errand, and his clothes looked ill-fitting and casual whereas Ursula would have liked robes and a ceremonial of introduction to this, her new estate. She made a new illusion of school. Miss Gray, the headmistress, had a certain silvery schoolmistressy beauty of character. The school itself had been a gentleman's house. Dark, somber lawns separated it from the dark select avenue, but its rooms were large and of good appearance, and from the back one looked over lawns and shrubbery, over the trees and the grassy slope of the arboretum, to the town which heaped the hollow with its roofs and cupolas and its shadows. So Ursula seated herself upon the hill of learning, looking down on the smoke and confusion and the manufacturing and gross activity of the town. She was happy. Up here in the grammar school she fancied the air was finer, beyond the factory smoke, 
She wanted to learn Latin and Greek and French and mathematics. She trembled like a postulant when she wrote the Greek alphabet for the first time. She was upon another hill-slope, whose summit she had not scaled. There was always the marvellous eagerness in her heart to climb and to see beyond. A Latin verb was virgin soil to her. She sniffed a new odour in it. It meant something, though she did not know what it meant. But she gathered it up. It was significant. When she knew that x squared minus y squared equals x plus y times x minus y, then she felt that she had grasped something, that she was liberated into an intoxicating air, rare and unconditioned, and she was very glad as she wrote her French exercise, J'ai donné la peine à mon petit frère. In all these things there was the sound of a bugle to her heart, exhilarating, summoning her to perfect places. She never forgot her brown Longman's first French grammar, nor her Via Latina, with its red edges, nor her little grey algebra book. There was always a magic in them. At learning she was quick, intelligent, instinctive, but she was not thorough. If a thing did not come to her instinctively, she could not learn it. And then her mad rage of loathing for all lessons, her bitter contempt of all teachers and schoolmistresses, her recoil to a fierce animal arrogance made her detestable. She was a free, unabatable animal, she declared in her revolts. There was no law for her, nor any rule. She existed for herself alone. Then ensued a long struggle with everybody, in which she broke down at last, when she had run the full length of her resistance, and sobbed her heart out, desolate. And afterwards, in a chastened, washed-out, bodiless state, she received the understanding that would not come before, and went her way sadder and wiser. Ursula and Gudrun went to school together. Gudrun was a shy, quiet, wild creature, a thin slip of a thing hanging back from notice or twisting past to disappear into her own world again. She seemed to avoid all contact instinctively, and pursued her own intent way, pursuing half-formed fancies that had no relation to anyone else. She was not clever at all. She thought Ursula clever enough for two. Ursula understood, so why should she, Gudrun, bother herself? The younger girl lived her religious, responsible life in her sister by proxy. For herself she was indifferent and intent as a wild animal, and as irresponsible. When she found herself at the bottom of the class, she laughed lazily and was content, saying she was safe now. She did not mind her father's chagrin, nor her mother's tinge of mortification. "'What do I pay for you to go to Nottingham for?' her father asked, exasperated. "'Well, Dad, you know you needn't pay for me,' she replied nonchalant. "'I'm ready to stop at home.' She was happy at home. Ursula was not. Slim and unwilling abroad, Gudrun was easy in her own house as a wild thing in its lair, whereas Ursula, attentive and keen abroad, at home was reluctant, uneasy, unwilling to be herself, or unable. Nevertheless, Sunday remained the maximum day of the week for both. Ursula turned passionately to it, to the sense of eternal security it gave. She suffered anguish of fears during the weekdays, for she felt strong powers that would not recognize her. 
There was upon her always a fear and a dislike of authority. She felt she could always do as she wanted if she managed to avoid a battle with authority and the authorized powers. But if she gave herself away, she would be lost, destroyed. There was always the menace against her. This strange sense of cruelty and ugliness always imminent, ready to seize hold upon her, this feeling of the grudging power of the mob lying in wait for her, who was the exception, formed one of the deepest influences of her life. Wherever she was, at school, among friends, in the street, in the train, she instinctively abated herself, made herself smaller, feigned to be less than she was, for fear that her undiscovered self should be seen, pounced upon, attacked by brutish resentment of the commonplace, the average self. She was fairly safe at school now. She knew how to take her place there, and how much of herself to reserve. But she was free only on Sundays. When she was but a girl of fourteen, she began to feel a resentment growing against her in her own home. She knew she was the disturbing influence there, but as yet, on Sundays, she was free, really free, free to be herself without fear or misgiving. End of chapter 10, part 1